0: This sermon was preached by Bob G. and Sarah, head pastor of Grace and Truth in Hartsdale, New York. Grace and Truth was planted in 2002 and is seeking to reach North Yonkers and Westchester County. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.gntchurch.org. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12, we're picking up where we left off last week on Abram's call, this week focusing on his journey after his act of obedience, let's begin in verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. It was the year 1620 in England. English Puritans were under great persecution for their religion. They were not free to openly worship the Lord Jesus Christ. They were not free to conduct their services apart from the Church of England. And in that year, a company of 120 persecuted Christians, men, women, and children, boarded the Mayflower led by a Captain Miles Standish, setting sail across the Atlantic Ocean on a perilous journey with the hope that indeed a better future was ahead of them in in this new land called America. The journey took over two months. The first month, this little schooner traveling across the Atlantic Ocean had pretty smooth sailing, but on the second month, terrible, terrible storms had beaten the small ship. Many of the people were sick and terrified for their lives. There were leaks on the boat. The conditions were horrendous. But these people had great faith in God that God was calling them to the new world. On November 11, 1620, the Mayflower landed in Provincetown, Massachusetts, the northern tip of Cape Cod. It was a Saturday that they arrived. They didn't exactly disembark yet because the next day was the Lord's Day. And they remained on the boat all day on that Sunday, praising God, worshipping His name. And then a couple of days later, Captain Miles Standish took 16 men with him as they went to scout the area. And from then on, we know the rest of the story. The story of the pilgrims settling in the area of New England... Settling eventually will become known as Plymouth and, um, and establishing what we call the Mayflower Compact, a rule of, of law governing this small body of Puritan Christians. More would come to stay and uh, we know the stories of the first Thanksgiving, although there was no such thing as a Thanksgiving, but more of a harvest festival, the people giving thanks to God. That first year though was tremendously difficult. That first year there in the winter, half of their company would die. They would face great struggles. The natives were not necessarily very friendly as our folklore would like to tell us. But indeed were hostile. Things were strange, things were different. They knew God had called them. They escaped England. They made a perilous journey to come to the the land of North America. They settled in a strange land with strange people. But they had hope that God had plans for them. And it's based on that premise That has made America the country it is today. Because America has always been and always will be a nation of pilgrims. People coming here from a foreign land. Coming here with the hopes of making a better life. Leaving a former one behind. Just like my grandfather that I spoke about last week. The one thing about all of these though. Is that it takes a tremendous sacrifice, commitment and fortitude. To make the pilgrim journey from a foreign land. To America. As grand as the examples of the original pilgrims may be, they cannot compare with the call and the testimony of our father Abraham. And today we're going to take a closer look at the beginning of his journey of faith and what God's Word tells us about this man and his incredible, unrelenting commitment and zeal and sacrifice to obey God. There are three things I want us to see today in Abraham's character. First, We're looking at Abraham from this perspective today as Abram the pilgrim. So we're going to look at first Abram's pilgrim mindset. Two, the struggles of Abram the pilgrim. And thirdly, the faith and commitment of Abram the pilgrim. First thing I want to look at is the pilgrim mindset of Abram. In order for Abram to make the great step of faith, and I have to rewind a little bit last week. Um, Let's go back and read verses 1 through 3 so I can bring everybody up to date. In verse 1 through 3, we read about the calling. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And verse 4 tells us, So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. So, last week, you can listen on Sermon Audio if you'd like to catch up on last week's message. Uh, But God gave a very direct command. He appeared to Abram and commanded him, Leave your father, leave your family, leave your land, your country, your kindred, and I want you to go to a place where I tell you, and I'll make a great nation of you. And God gave him numerous promises, and Abraham took a step of faith. And he obeyed God, and he left Haran, setting off to Canaan. He was indeed a pilgrim. What is a pilgrim? A pilgrim is a traveller, a stranger in a foreign land. Synonyms in the Bible are often seen as alien or foreigner. Just as the original pilgrims came from England settling here in a foreign land, hoping to make a better life, Abraham is a pilgrim himself. He is the original pilgrim. He left the world behind him, he left his family, he left everything that was common to him to start a new life. But in order to be a pilgrim, you have to have what is called a pilgrim mindset. Or what is a pilgrim mindset? It's simply this, having a fixed goal, leaving everything behind that is familiar to you, and living as a stranger in a foreign land. James Montgomery Boyce puts it very simple. He asks the question, what is a pilgrim? He says, not someone who has merely left home, but rather someone. A, a pilgrim is one who has left home but is traveling to another home. A pilgrim has a vision of a goal, a destination, and is determined to hang loose on everything else until the achievement of that new and better place. The book of Hebrews chapter 11 verse 9 through 10 explains to us and examines the great pilgrimage and the pilgrim mindset of Abram. It says this, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking towards the city that housed foundations whose designer and builder is God. Now think about this. Abram, 75 years old, when called to make this journey. Canaan is about 800 miles from Haran. This was no small trip God was asking. This was a huge sacrifice. This was a huge journey. It was a huge. Goal ahead of him. This was not for the weak of heart. Not only did it take an incredible amount of faith to believe in God, but it required a tremendous ability, and a tremendous amount of faith to let go of his past, his comfort zone, his people, and his worldview. His journey required a pilgrim mindset. How many of us today have a pilgrim mindset? I am afraid that many of us here today are like Abram in Haran. We hear the call of God. We've been illuminated to the truth, but we're unwilling to leave Haran and make the journey. You're unwilling to make the sacrifice. You're unwilling to take a step of faith and journey towards the promised land. There are many today that call themselves Christians, profess to know Christ as Lord and Savior, but are unwilling to do what it takes to live like a Christian unwilling to take a step of faith and obey and leave the world behind that is all familiar and to walk by faith trusting that God has a better life ahead of us, a better world and a better promises enacted for the future. Sadly, I think in many ways we look around us in the church today and I find it's very hard sometimes, depending on the context you're in, to distinguish a Christian from a non-Christian. Ask yourself the question, when you go to work or your daily routine, do people know the difference? Do you stand out in your workplace? Do you stand out in your school? Do you stand out among your family? Is there something different about you? Or do you just seem to blend in with it all? Now I've heard the arguments, well, you know, we have to become all things to all people that we can win them to Christ. But far too often I see people becoming all things to all people but not winning anyone to Christ. It's not so much how we blend in that's going to win people. It's how distinct we are in our testimony uh, that wins people to Christ. How do you know you have a pilgrim mindset? Well, here's a good question to ask yourself this morning to know if you have a pilgrim mindset. Are you afraid to die? And that might sound like a sort of rhetorical question. Because I think there's an element that all of us have of a fear of death. is an element of the unknown. But I want to ask you this question, when you really think about it, the concept of death, the prospect of death, does it terrify you? And if so, why? Why are you deathly afraid of death? No pun intended. Why are you terrified of dying? Well, because the truth of it is, because everything you love and know and is familiar and comfortable and secure to you is in this world. And by dying, you essentially will lose everything in this world and say goodbye to everything in this world. But you see, a pilgrim, someone who's truly come to faith in Christ, has adopted a pilgrim mindset, can say like Paul in Philippians chapter 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Death does not mean a termination or an end of life it means the beginning of life a true Christian has set his hope and fixed his hope on heaven has fixed his hope as John was reading before in Hebrews chapter 12 of Mount Zion and the innumerable angels where God has called us the eternal city whose foundations and builder is God that is what Abram was looking to it wasn't necessarily Canaan that was the ultimate goal of his heart he was looking ultimately to Mount Zion he was looking to the heavenly city he was looking to being with God forever and ever. And nothing else could compare or rival what God had prepared for him. And if you've truly come to faith in Christ, then heaven and Mount Zion and all that God has prepared for us should be the joy of our hearts and should be the ultimate goal and vision of our lives. And the one way you'll know that it's not is if you are horrified and terrified of death. Because it means... That that isn't the ultimate goal and ambition and zeal and desire of your heart. It's this world. You haven't left Tehran. You haven't, you haven't set out on your pilgrimage yet. Sometimes we don't always feel like pilgrims. We're too comfortable here. Well, the question is, well, if I don't feel like a pilgrim today, Bob, and I don't have the pilgrim mindset, how do I get it? Well, it all begins with how we think. Proverbs 23, 7 says, As a man thinketh, so he is. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 2 give us very good instructions on how we could adopt the pilgrim mindset. Here is the writing of Apostle Paul to the church. If then you've been raised with Christ. Alright, what is this speaking? If you've been raised, in other words, if you've been born again, if you've been born from the dead, if you were spiritually dead and now you're, you're alive and you've been given spiritual life and you've been raised up with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind, listen to this, set your mind on things that are above and not on things that are the earth. So there's something very practical that you could do here. The Bible tells us if you're born again, if you're a new creation in Christ, then it's very simple. Seek the things that are in heaven with Christ. Set your mind, set your attention, set your focus redirected towards heaven and not on the things of this world. The problem is with most of us is that we spend far too much time focusing on this world, on things below instead of things above. Do we walk down looking at the earth all the time? Or are we looking up to heaven? Where is our focus? Where is our heart? Seek those things that are above. Let's I, I, think of this practically. Your life is but a vapor, the Bible says. It is a small vapor. Here for a moment, gone tomorrow. If, if, if all of you are fortunate and blessed, you'll live the most 80, 90 years and then you'll die. That's not a long time compared to eternity. Where should your gaze be fixed? Here? The temporary existence that you're going to perish one day? Or forever? In heaven with God. So we need, in order to adopt the pilgrim mindset, if we're going to really be like Abram and make in his pilgrimage and, and sit, leave everything behind and be able to walk towards the heavenly city that God has called us to, We need to throw off all these things that set us aside. We need to throw off our gaze and attention on this world and put it on Christ and on the eternal city of God. Abram went. He was 75 years old. He took his whole family, took everything with him and he left. He packed his bags and went. We need to do the same thing, guys. We need to pack our bags and go. Stop lingering in the place where God doesn't want you to be. The second thing about a pilgrim is that a pilgrim will always have struggles. Look at verses 6 and 7 in chapter 12. Actually, I'm going to begin a little earlier at the end of verse 5. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. We'll stop there for a minute. Let's let's look at a few of these things here. Um, uh, but before we do, I want to just remind you all one thing: that when a pilgrim determines to make a journey, there will always be struggles and there will be obstacles we will encounter. Just as I made reference to the pilgrims who came here, it wasn't an easy trip. It wasn't a four-hour plane flight from London to New York City. It was a two-month perilous journey through the Atlantic Ocean, which was a terrifying place in that time of history. It was the unknown. The ocean's huge. You ever been on a cruise liner and see how big the ocean is? Just put yourself back in time 400 years when less was known about the world. It was a scary place to be for two whole months. In a little ship with no air conditioning, no heat, and no comforts that we have today. Just stranded out there in the middle ocean being bombarded by hurricanes is a very terrifying experience indeed. Abram had had obstacles along his way. Of course, he had the obstacle. He was an old man. It wasn't easy for him to travel. His wife was barren. But we really get into the obstacles here as we look into the text. What were his obstacles? Well, besides the regular obstacles his chief struggle would be living in Canaan. As we just read about his entrance into the land of Canaan, there's a parenthetical remark here that says at that time the Canaanites were in the land. This is very important. It's there for a reason. Now Moses is writing this to the children of Israel uh, far in the future, but he wants He's writing this to the Israelites, giving them an indication that as they're about to enter the land of Canaan and dwell amongst the Canaanites and inherit the land God promised Abram, he wants to remind them, your father Abraham journeyed to Canaan too. And they were there when he was there. It wasn't a desolate land. He was surrounded by foreign natives who probably for all intents and purposes were not so welcoming to Abram. Clearly it was the case for the pilgrims that came here. Aboard the Mayflower. In fact, reading some of the diaries and accounts I studied when I, I was studying history in college, it was terrifying, the, nat- the natives were terrifying to the people, the, the settlers here from England. Now, just imagine yourself living in the 1600s England, coming here. Um, society in England was, for the most part, had been advanced and, 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 and was, you know, civilization had advanced quite far than what the Native Indians were doing here in America. When they came here they see these uh, um, strange looking people unlike anything they've ever seen running around with, with, with uh, uh, strange clothing. Most of the time they were naked with paintings all and tattoos all over their bodies speaking a very strange language, having very strange customs, having very strange pagan religious festivals, the forest was a very frightening place for the for the pilgrims in early America. Uh, when you built a settlement you cleared out trees and built your your homes. The idea of going into the dark forest at night was as scary as hell itself. You did not wander off into the woods at night if you lived in a Puritan settlement in New England because that 's where these pagan Indians dwelt and you I read one diary of this woman where where they would be in their establishment in their settlement, and they could hear the screams and the shrieks of the Indians as they were uh, worshipping their their pagan deities, and it was frightening. It being a stranger in a strange land is a very frightening thing, and it and for for the most part, it's it is the most or the biggest, the greatest obstacle we will face as a pilgrim. Uh, in John Bunyan, in his uh, book written, The Pilgrim's Progress, uh, the whole book outlines the journey of Christian, who makes a pilgrimage journey, leaving everything behind to the eternal city. And, and his journey, his, the foreign land that he was journeying through was called Vanity Fair. If any of you remember reading the book. And um, it's as he wanders through Vanity Fair, he encounters all the obstacles that try to beset him and throw him off his course Getting to the Eternal City. Well, Vanity Fair, and Canaan for us is this world. Now, Abram entered into Canaan, and there was a lot going on there. Not only were the they were there; they were pagans. But he, if if we read the text here, he goes to Shechem. There was a very uh, um, specific issue going on here that was very very real and brought out here in the text that we can't see on the surface. But but Shechem was a place of worship. It says here that he went to the place at Shechem, to the Oak of Marah. Now, it's interesting here. First of all, we have to see a few things. Shechem is at the heart and the geographical center of Canaan. It's about 40 miles north of Jerusalem. And it says the place. It is not a specific translation. The actual word in Hebrew translates into sacred site the word place there so that that's that's a very vague english translation of the hebrew because the actual hebrew word means it's a sacred site suggesting this is a location a central location of pagan worship furthermore the oak at mora indicates the name of this sacred place it is a it it is common in the pagan religions and animistic religions that people worship trees that tall trees are are ladders to heaven. I mean, uh, you, you, they reach high up into the heavens and they reach down to the earth. And so, it's very common in animistic and pagan cultures to worship at trees. And the word morah in Hebrew indicates to us the nature of the sacred size. Uh, the word mora in Hebrew means uh, teacher. It was a place where they received divine oracles. So here... Abram made his journey, sweeps into Canaan. He arrives right in the the geographical center of Canaan. He's here. He's pitched his tent. He's with his family. And all of a sudden, he's observing the Canaanites worship uh, their pagan deities here at Shechem at this great oak tree. And one could only imagine how he must have felt. It might have been at this point, he might have thought of turning around and going home. He said, what in the world am I doing here? How is he possibly going to take control of Shechem? How is he going to take control of Canaan? How is he going to inherit this land? And it's at that moment that God appears to Abram. Verse 7. It says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. And so he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. It is at this very moment that God appears to Abram in a theophany and confirms and reiterates to him the promise that he's going to do. So that Abram would have the confidence to continue and not turn back. As I said before, for us, Vanity Fair, Canaan is this world. This This is the foreign land we live in as pilgrims of Christ. Jesus calls us out of this world, John 15. But yet we're still in the world. This world becomes foreign to us when we become Christians. When we're born again, when we're given new life. This world becomes a foreign place. It's no longer the same. In fact, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, He prays this very thing for us. John 17, 15-16 says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now wouldn't it be nice if you got saved, believed in Jesus Christ, and just translated you straight to heaven, right? Wouldn't that be nice? We could avoid all the conflict and all the difficulties of life. But no, Christ saves us. He calls us spiritually out of this world. He calls us out of Iran. He calls us out of war. But then He puts us right back in the world, which now becomes a foreign land to us. All of a sudden, we, we're no longer the same. We can no longer... Ide- and any of you who have truly come to Christ know this. All of a sudden, you can't relate the same to your unsaved friends and family members. All of a sudden the conversations, you, you walk away, it Just it, you can't get into those conversations no more. Your heart changes, your desires change, everything changes. And, and all of a sudden you feel like, hey, I'm a stranger here, I don't. what am I doing here? That is what happens to us. But what happens is, is that the world now becomes a hostile place to us and an obstacle to our obedience. It becomes a struggle And so the question is, how do we carry out our lives here? How do we live our lives in a world, in a context that is opposed to everything that God teaches us? Well, we have to do like Abram did. He lived in Canaan, but he never became a Canaanite. He was a Hebrew. He lived in Canaan, but he did not adopt their culture. He did not adopt their worldview. He did not adopt their religion. He didn't blend in. He was a Hebrew. He was called by God and he remained faithful to Yahweh. See, we must learn the difference of what the educator Piaget called. We must know the difference between assimilation and accommodation. Now, from a learning perspective, people learn two different ways. Some people learn by changing their outward world but keeping the inward the same. And some people learn by changing their inward self to accommodate to the outward world that's the difference between accommodation and assimilation see abram assimilated you know he was able to go into canaan he was able to assimilate in society and kind of adapt himself without accommodating to the culture and context of those people he knew where to draw the line he he was able to live there without getting into any direct conflict but at the same time he would not Become like them. And I think, as I said earlier, I think the tendency for us is to accommodate most of the time. Thinking we could win people by becoming like them. It becomes a fine line. It's like a razor's edge. We have to know where that line is. Too many times I think we we hover over the razor's edge. And the razor's edge could be very sharp. Sharp. Generations later, when God would bring Abram's descendants from Egypt to Canaan to possess the land with Moses, listen to how God commanded them to live in the land. Look in your Bibles in Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus chapter 18 in verse one. Leviticus 18:1 says this: And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Speak to the people of Israel." And say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. It's very clear. What is the message for the people that entered into Canaan? Do not do as they do. You are to be distinct and in chapter 19 of Leviticus, God makes it more clear. You are to be holy as I am holy, says the Lord God. And the concept of holiness means to be distinct, different, set apart, separated, consecrated to God. You are to go into the land and possess it, but you are not to do like them. You do not walk in their statutes and customs and laws. You don't act like them. You are to walk in my statutes, in my customs, and my way, says the Lord. We are to be imitators of Christ, not imitators of the world. And this same principle is reiterated to us over and over again in the New Testament. In Ephesians 5, verses 7-11, through Paul puts it very clearly. He says, Therefore, do not become partners with them, speaking of the world. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So God calls us to walk in the light just as He is light. To reflect His light, to reflect His character, to reflect His goodness, to reflect His holiness, to reflect Him in all that we do and not be partakers, not to partner with the world and yoke up with them. Instead, we're to expose them. We're to bring to light the evil deeds of this world. Oh, so many times we're afraid to do that. I was talking to a brother recently about Facebook and so many Christians are on Facebook some are bold and go out and just proclaim the truth and expose the lies there but so many just cower in fear afraid to offend their coworkers afraid to offend this one afraid to catch the heat and so we we get quiet and, 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 and the other on the other hand, those who are ungodly are boldly just just setting out their all their ungodliness, and, and this is not just Facebook, it's the world. The face Facebook's just a microcosm of, of the world we live in. You know, we're to be different, distinct, and we're to boldly proclaim, as I'll look in a, in a, in a while, the difference between our God and the God of this world. You see, many times we're worldly. In the sense that instead of bearing the fruit of the Spirit, we're bearing evidence of the works of the flesh. Our character reflects anything but God. It reflects the ungod. What Sometimes we, people look and say, what's the difference between him and the world? Or her and the world? How do we act? How, do we really show Christ in our behavior? And ultimately, who are our gods? Who are we serving? Are we serving Christ with all our heart? Is He alone God? Does He alone captivate and, and have, have your whole heart, mind and soul? Where do we secretly serve the gods of the Canaanites? What are the gods today? Well, you name it. Anything could be a god. Anything that gets your heart attention more than Jesus is a god, is an idol. Some of you could be sports. Maybe you're you're a die-hard Yankees fan. You won't miss one game during the week. But I don't know if I could make it to Bible study. I'll see how I feel. And I don't know if... Uh, I don't know if I feel like going out and evangelizing. Huh? You know, you, you really could detect your heart by where your passion, where your devotion is. What are you passionate about? What are you really excited about? Some of us could be fashion, keeping up with the trends of clothing, looking cool. Could be business, maybe your job and making lots of money and, and working hard, or or it could be technology, keeping up with the latest tech gadgets and. And and overall, just materialism. Living for things, thinking that things bring our happiness. You see, anything that we seek to make us happy and to be satisfied in life apart from Christ is a God, is an idol, is a rival competing with our affections for Christ. You see, we must remember that in this world we're going to have a conflict, there's going to be a tension. If you are called to be a Christian, there's going to be some tension. You don't get saved and just kind of blend in. If you're truly walking with Christ and you have the pilgrim mindset, there's going to be a tension between you and the world. You know why I know that? Because Jesus told us that. John 15, verse 18, Jesus makes very clear, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If you are living according to God's word, if you are living a holy life and are truly seeking to please God in all that you do and are not accommodating the culture around you, there's going to be conflict. 2 Timothy 3.12 tells us, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The evidence that you're living a life of a pilgrim, the evidence that you're living holy unto God, will be that there will be tension, there will be conflict, there will be people in this world opposing you. Are you persecuted at your job? Praise Jesus. Are you persecuted at school for standing up for Christ? Praise the Lord. Do your family members ridicule you and mock you because of your unwavering commitment to Christ? Hallelujah. Jesus told us in Matthew 5, so did they do to the prophets. So we're not to be upset when people persecute us and ridicule us for our love for Christ and our obedience and holiness. We should rejoice. Because so they did to our Lord Jesus Christ. And if anything, it's a mark. It's a mark of our genuine Christianity. When we live for Christ, there are going to be things in this world that are going to be and should be alien to you. The Canaanites and their customs and their religion were alien to Abram. And God's appearance to him might have signaled to us that he was thinking about turning back and he needed to encourage Abram to keep the course. This world is the more you walk with Christ, the more alien this world is going to become to you. The more the more friction and tension you're going to sense. But God is constantly reminding us, not through theophanies, but when we come to church, when we come to Bible studies, which is why we need to constantly be under the preaching and teaching of God's Word to remind us to stay the course. If I don't go to church for a month, or I don't go to Bible study for a month, and I'm the pastor, I've got news for you. Check me back a month later, and I'm going to be a really worldly person. It doesn't take long for the influences and the corruption of the world to come on me. I, I could fall away very quickly. I know my own self. I have to constantly be disciplined to guard myself. And some of us who take a leisurely approach to worship and to our commitment to, to, to being under the teaching of the Word will find yourselves really quickly drifting away. It it, it happens so quick. And if you think, no, no, not me. I'm a, I've been saved for 20 years and I'm a strong Christian. Take heed, you who think you stand, lest you fall. All right. Finally, the pilgrim's courage. God doesn't appear often to people, but in this occasion, God appears to Abram twice in a very short period of time, and he reaffirms his time in Canaan, his commitment and promise to Abram, so he doesn't lose faith. And how does Abram respond? Well, the way any true believer would, he worships. Right there in Shechem, right in the heart of Canaan, he builds a sacred place. He builds at the sacred place where the pagans worship. He builds an altar to God and worships Yahweh. Just picture this. Here he is. Now remember, Abram, it's not just him and Lot and and his wife. It's not just three people. Abram's got a large entourage of people that he brought with him from, from Haran. He's got, he's got slaves. He's got men, male and female servants. He's got oxes. He's got donkey. His, his extended family. At least a couple hundred people. Uh, later in chapter 14, he's got 380 men ready to go to war with him. So he's got quite a large entourage. And here he is at this very popular sacred site. And what does he do right there in front of their sacred site? He builds an altar to Yahweh and openly worships him. That is the courage of a pilgrim. He goes down south, and in between Bethel and Ai, and Bethel was another sacred site for the pagans. It was a patron city of the god El, the Canaanite pantheon. and And Bethel, there again, he builds another altar to God. And this time it adds something to the text. It says he calls upon the name of the Lord. In verse 8, the end of verse 8. Now, there's varied understandings of how that's translated, but a lot of people would agree that the the concept of of calling upon the name of the Lord meant that He was proclaiming the name of Yahweh. So not only does, does He build these altars at these sacred spots in Canaan, symbolically claiming the land for God by faith, But here He is in the face of hostile pagan opposition, building altars and proclaiming and glorifying the name of Yahweh publicly and openly without shame, without fear, and without any inhibition. That is bold. That is courageous faith. Just to give you an idea of what it's like, could you imagine taking a trip to Iran and going in front of a big mosque and, and, and getting a group of Christians and start praising Jesus and preaching the gospel in front of a large mosque in, in Iran. would be, be pretty crazy, right? This is what he's doing. Bold faith, he's out there. He's in one hand claiming the land for God, in another hand glorifying God in the face of all these pagans. Ironically, in comparison with Nimrod, who wanted to build large towers for their glory, he's building altars for the glory of God. And unlike Nimrod, who tried to make a name for himself, Abram makes a name for God, and in return, God makes a name for him. Abram is a true evangelist. He doesn't hide from the culture, no. He doesn't run away from the culture, no. And he doesn't blend in with the culture, no. But he confronts the culture with truth, publicly proclaiming God. He did this by building altars. But for us, we don't build altars. Instead, we build the kingdom of God. We have, we have realized all the promises of Abram in the new covenant. And so when we, when we are called by God, we are called not to go lay claim of a particular geographical land, but we are called to lay claim to the souls, to the lost souls who are God's people, building up the kingdom of God through the local church. The church is not an essential a geographical location. It is diverse and widespread. And God calls us in whatever church we serve in to build up that church. To be bold, to be courageous. And to confront the culture with the truth of the gospel. And to, to, to have a heart for the lost. To have a passion for the lost. And to claim them for Jesus Christ. There are three practical ways where we can we can be like Abram. Abram in, in building these altars. One... In our own local church, building it up. Our hearts should be uh, passionate and, and desirous and zealous to fill these pews with people who do not know Jesus. I'm not talking about getting people from Sermon Audio who heard a sermon. We want them too, but we need to all, those of us who are here, have a passion for the lost. To go out there in our jobs and into the streets. Joe's doing the way the master training course. Whether it's, it's it's just going about our daily business. Witnessing, sharing the gospel people. Inviting them to church. We should want to see people saved. Are our hearts so cold that we don't care if people go to hell or not? Are our hearts so cold that we don't care if the if the lost are dying and perishing? Have we become that isolated, that cold and that far removed from God? If we've lost our passion for the lost, and we don't really understand the gospel. The gospel is not just about you getting saved, but it's about, it's about the blessing for all nations, and that we're God's vehicle to bring that blessing to others. When we build up our church, we're building altars for God. By supporting the work of other church plants, we should be getting behind new works as we grow, we should be thinking about how can we support, maybe maybe Grace and Truth can plant a church one day. That's the vision that we just don't fill our pews, but that we could send off 20, 30 people, plant another church in Westchester. Building altars all over Westchester County for the glory and praise of Christ, and ultimately by supporting global missions. Our partnership with the Southern Baptist Convention is for a very sincere purpose and that's to help get the gospel out to all people all over the world. Let me conclude by saying this. Abram was called by God and he embarked on a journey of faith to last many years. And there are several things we learned today in regards to his early mission to Canaan. First, we need to adopt the pilgrim mindset if we're going to continue on this journey of faith. Hebrews twelve one through 2 tells us this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, every sin that clings so easily. Let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. We need to set aside the sins and the things that are encumbering us and holding us back from really making a difference for, for God. We need to put fix our minds, set our minds on things above, on Christ who is seated in the heavens at the right hand of God and on the place. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. We need to keep our eyes fixed on that and know what we're here for and understand our purpose. Are we living like pilgrims? Or are we one with the world? The Bible tells us, wherever your treasure is, there your heart is also. Examine your hearts today. What's got a grip on your life? What's got a grip on your heart? The world or the kingdom of God? I urge you today, if it's the world, flee to Christ. Flee to the cross. Only Christ can really satisfy you. That's why He says, come to me, the fountain of living waters, and you will never thirst again. We we try to satisfy all our Longings and comforts and desires in this world, nothing will satisfy. You'll always be left empty. Only Jesus can satisfy. Only He can truly give you delight and true joy because only He is enjoyable. He supplies all our needs according to His riches and glory. And when you truly treasure Christ and you truly see Him through with the eyes of faith, knowing the gospel, that He died for your sins, that He rose from the dead to give you new life, eternal life forever with Him in the heavens, that He loves you so much that He gave everything for you, Giving up anything in this world is a small token of gratitude in the face of all that He's given for us so that we, our sins could be forgiven, so that we could be cleared with God, and so that we could have access to the throne of grace. And finally, you're going to face obstacles in this world. Jesus never promised it would be easy. He never said to us, get saved, follow me, and the journey will be easy. I'll make everything a bed of roses for you. It's going to be peaches and cream. He never told us that, ever. But here's what He did promise us in John 16, 33. He says, I said these things to you that in me you may have peace. He said, in the world you will have tribulation. You know what that word tribulation means? Very difficult times. That's what, so look at what Jesus tells us. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So is the world going to present obstacles to us? Is it going to be a struggle? Are we going to find ourselves trying to get through Vanity Fair to the eternal city with a lot of uh, uh, temptations and struggles? Absolutely! You will have many troubles in this world, but let not your heart be troubled. Jesus says, I've overcome the world. We don't have to worry about trying to fight all these battles. We just got to keep our eyes fixed on heaven and be like Abram, proclaiming the glory of Christ, making it our chief goal and our chief ambition to make Christ known to honor him through the preaching of the gospel through supporting any ministry that gets the gospel out and making the glory and the praise of Jesus Christ known by all people of every nation tongue and tribe that is our that's what we're here for anything short of that I pray that God would give you clarity because you're near confused God has called us here so that we may know him and make him known That is our purpose, to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever and to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. Amen? Let's stand in a closing prayer. And then John will close us with a song. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.